What is up, everybody? Welcome to Future Projection. This is episode 78 of the show, a Baseball America podcast. I'm Carlos Colazzo, joined by Ben Badler on the eve of college baseball season. How are you doing, Ben? I'm great, Carlos. How about you? I'm doing well. We've got one more week until all of our projecting and predicting and hoping for the college season will be in the past and we'll actually be watching college baseball. Um, so I'm thrilled about that. Uh, I think the combination of doing this podcast consistently and also doing the draft podcast consistently on the BA feed with Peter has meant that I've I've probably talked more about the upcoming draft class in general and the amateur season this offseason than I ever have. And so I'm like beyond ready for the season to actually be here so we can actually react to what's happening on the field. And you can stop talking to me as much exactly yeah. no no i mean ideally i'd like to keep talking to you every week we'll just have like actual things to react to um outside of off-season moves or lack thereof and commentary on various team owners like it'll just be fun to have some pitcher who we had either off the board or way down the board who's all of a sudden shoving and jumping up lists and just watching all these teams play that'll actually be fun um but we got plenty to talk about today um before we get into that, though, are you excited about the upcoming Red Sox Netflix documentary that was announced? Are Red Sox fans excited about that? <laughs> <It's> like, <laughs> you, you, you would have a better pulse on the Red Sox fandom than me. Uh, well, I, I don't think Red Sox fans are quite the quite really? too happy right now with their <laughs> ownership in particular. Not that I think so. Most they're not fans excited like, about the documentary. I feel like kind of being. Uh, taking it for granted a little bit. I feel like any fan would be pumped to get just more content about their team. I'm, I'm sure people will watch it, but like, I, I think the frustration is great. We have this documentary coming out mm. about the Red Sox. Uh, meanwhile, they're not signing free agents. They're talking about how they're going to go full throttle this year in the off season. And so far, like nothing is happening. The farm system is like <laughs> solid, not great. Yeah. Uh, I think just, the, the fact that the farm system is not the top of that division, I think has a lot of Red Sox fans pissed because like theoretically you've been trying to rebuild it and you have teams like the Orioles and the Yankees who are, have better farm system rankings and are projected to finish better in the division and have been more active in terms of impact major league moves. So I guess I can understand that, but I mean, as someone who is not like a Red Sox fan specifically, I'm pumped about this project in general uh it sounds like the the people who made last chance you and cheer are doing this for the red sox i watched i think i watched the first two seasons of last chance you once once it changed schools i think i kind of hopped off i actually like shockingly did watch cheer my maddie was like really excited to watch it and i was like what, eh. what is what is cheer so it's cheer cheer dumb. follows the there's like this one dominant competitive cheer team at uh, a junior college in texas and it basically just follows that team and, and like building up to their like championship meet essentially. Um, and I was like, this has no appeal at all to me. And she's like, no, it's supposed to be really good. And if you watch an episode, it actually is really, it's really good television. So just the fact that, that we're going to have that for baseball, I think is fun in general. Um, I mean, I mentioned this on Twitter when it was announced, but like I am not a huge F1 fan, but I am more interested in F1 now because JJ made me watch Drive to Survive and it was awesome. Uh, and so now I'm more into it. So if that can happen for baseball, either people who otherwise wouldn't have watched baseball or just casual fans who get more into the sport, 
because of it. I mean, I think it's just an easy W, an easy win, great for the sport. I, I almost think that like baseball season is built for something like this, uh, and especially as someone who loves the regular season like I do, like the the daily dramas and the daily like routine of the players. I guess it's all dependent on like how involved the actual players are going to be and and like how buttoned up the players are going to be. Um, but I feel like it. I feel like it's just a, nothing but a victory for baseball fans in general. Yeah, if you were a player, would you want this though? I feel like I'd be like, get <laughs> out of my face. Like they, the players already don't like that. There's so much media, especially in Boston. Yeah. Have, there's just so much more media than, uh, you know, Milwaukee, Tampa Bay, one of the smaller markets. Mm. They they already are not. They they would like to have less media access yeah. in the clubhouse. I feel like this would be even more mm-hmm. invasive. Although I wonder how much, mm. you know, how. It's charitable it's, it's going to be toward uh, well um, i don't I know were, were the other documentaries like very like i wouldn't say they were friendly? i wouldn't say so i no. think they were fairly i mean it's hard for me to know really because I'm, I'm just like watching it as a like i, I don't know better, a ton yeah, yeah like I, I don't know a ton about it but it seemed like there were things that happened in both of the shows that if you were assuming that like it was a pr campaign I wouldn't have expected to see a lot of the scenes and storylines that are actually depicted. Um, like I would imagine the main uh, subjects of the documentary would prefer not to have talked about some of the things they had to. Uh, but I also remember when they started Drive to Survive, they did not target or even have on camera a lot of the top drivers and top teams. Like they just weren't involved. And so I think the the pitch, it seemed like they were going to start with some of the lower table teams who didn't get a lot of attention anyways, who would be more like interested in that because it, it may be more beneficial for them because they're kind of shadowed. So the first time I watched it, I knew who like the top teams and the top racers were. And I'm like, why are we not seeing Ferrari and Lewis Hamilton and Max Verstappen? And then after the show became really popular, the other drivers and the other teams then were more willing to be on the show and they were much more prominent. So I wonder if it'll be something like that where teams and players will need to see like a proof of concept and, and see how everything is depicted. And if it's received favorably, maybe players will be more willing to kind of come on the show and, and open up a bit more. But I also can see uh, like just baseball players. I don't think the the comparison straight to formula one drivers is the same because I mean, the F one drivers are superstars compared to just random baseball players on a team. And I, I definitely feel like the, clubhouse vibe that you get from team to team is probably a lot more conservative and like there are all these unwritten rules and i can definitely see like depending on where i was at in my career that might change significantly the degree to which i was interested or not like i can't imagine being a rookie or a young player trying to establish themselves on the team wanting to take part in this because i wouldn't want to like piss someone off i'd basically just want to fit in and move along and do my job Whereas maybe if you're like, I don't know, if you're an established star and you are kind of comfortable with where you're at, what you've done, like you're not really trying to break into the league. Um, maybe it's just like you're more comfortable in that space in general and so you're fine with it. I don't know. I, I think it'll really depend on like specific personalities. I, I don't, It feels like all these documentary crews are different than the day-to-day media though. Like they really embed with the team to a larger degree than like your beat reporter does. I mean, presumably that that's the whole point of having the show, but I don't know. Yeah. I don't think, uh, like uh, say 
<laughs> so they still had Chris Sale and Alex Verdugo right now. Like those guys, <laughs> especially Chris Sale, I think he'd be like pumped to have this <laughs> documentary crew following him around. Yeah. No, I mean, it, it sounded like there was a meeting with key members of the team. And if the team, if those players specifically are like, no, they wouldn't do it. So you, you have to have buy-in from... I don't know how it works for a baseball team when there's a huge number of players on the roster and like who is prominent enough to say no, that it'll actually matter. Um, but you had to have a lot of people sign off on something like this, obviously. And again, I hope they're able to just tell some cool stories and show aspects of the game that maybe people aren't familiar with and, and just have like a, a very high caliber sort of documentary like in season hard knocks style I, I i've never really watched hard knocks consistently but what that does for football in terms of getting people excited about the season and just like generating interest i think is cool like we talked about with teams doing some of the teams do this sort of stuff on youtube like not to the same degree but just like behind the scenes documentary style content i think this is becoming more common um it just seems like a layup for the for the league and hopefully it goes across really well and uh, we, we do it more in the future. What's your ideal sort of format for something like this? Like, do you think following one team is cool? Would you rather it follow specific players? Would you rather follow like multiple teams? Like if you're building this out or if you're just a fan, what would you want to see the most? It probably makes more sense to follow one team, right? So you can get more in depth on that club. No. Yeah. Yeah, I think so. I think maybe depending on like how many episodes you get and, and when you're turning the product around, like if it's something that comes out in the off season prior to like if you're telling stories about the previous year and you're releasing it right before the next year, like the, that's the format that F1 takes. So the way their series works and it's different because it's it's 20 drivers and 10 teams. So you can kind of tell the story of a lot of different racers and drivers, whereas if you're doing that with MLB, I mean, it's 30 teams. It's a significant amount of players and personalities. So you, it's not a direct comparison that you can make. I, I think it would be interesting to see kind of contrasting stories of multiple teams. Like if each year maybe you picked some of the favorites or a favorite that year, and then you compared a team that was maybe more rebuilding or built around young players who just weren't, the expectations weren't very high. I think that contrasting like team dynamic back and forth would be really interesting to watch. Which camp do the Red Sox fall into right now? I They, they seem squarely middle of the pack, right? Like the fact that they're in the AL East and maybe they're going to be picked to finish last in that division. I think probably if they were in the American League Central, they could easily win that division. So it, it feels like they're middle of the pack somewhere, which, which yeah. maybe that's cool too. Just seeing like what is an average big league team and with Boston, they're going to have that sort of the, the history of Boston and the fact that they're a, a large market. Maybe that adds some intrigue to like a casual fan. Who's not necessarily a, a fan of a baseball team or baseball in general. Maybe, maybe that adds some allure. I don't know. Who, who's the star Tristan Cassis. I really think Tristan Cassis has a chance to, to become a star from this. Cause he, he seems like a quirky enough guy to, to come across in a fun way on TV. Yeah, otherwise, I'm not sure <laughs> who it would be. Uh, I'm sure they'll find some human interest story to package <laughs> it around. Yeah. No, I, I think it's cool. Um, I mean, who, which which player would you most want to see on a on a show like this? On the which Red player Sox in the or... league? No, in the league. Like, if, oh. you, if, you, if you had to pick a team or maybe a specific player that you really wanted to, like, follow throughout the season... 
Uh, I would do. And, you, I mean, and just assume the, that the player is going to work with you. Like you don't have to say, "Oh, I would want this player," but he doesn't seem like he likes doing media. Like just assume Anthony Rendon would be like very down to do whatever you wanted him to do if you picked him, for instance. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think. Uh, yeah, that's not think, your guy. No, that would not be my first <laughs> choice. Um, I might I pick Julio. Julio Rodriguez. Yeah, that's a good one. Yeah. Uh, th- yeah, like guys like down for that too. guys like Otani and Acuna, I would be very intrigued, but I don't know how much they would actually want to be speaking in English on something like this. And I think that might be a barrier that would maybe make Julio a pick for me. Yeah, you could just do subtitles though, right? Yeah, you could. You could for sure. Um, I mean, for teams, I would do the I would do either the the Dodgers are the kind of the obvious one for this year, mm-hmm, right? Yeah, them or or the Orioles. I'm obviously thinking of it through the lens of like somebody who is, you know, just cares about wins and losses and uh, like the, the Orioles just being a young up and coming mm-hmm. team right now with Adley and Gunner and then Jackson holiday coming and, up. And you already have the intro. If it's a show about the Orioles, did you see that succession edit that was put on the Orioles a few weeks ago on Twitter? Uh, I saw it and then oh, it was epic. I saw like 10 seconds and I thought, <laughs> all right, I get the point. Oh, uh, well, I, did you watch succession at all? No. So oh, come like, on. Yeah. I was like, all right, this is <laughs> probably good, but yes, it was, I put an 80 on it. It was good. I, I think following a pit, like having a pitcher, like following their routines would also be cool. Cause I think pitchers in general are just weirder than hitters. Um, mm-hmm. and so following like, like a, a starter following their routine, like seeing what they do, I think could be cool. Like a guy like Spencer Strider is just interesting in general, just because of how he talks pitching for me. Um, I imagine someone like that would come across cool. Or imagine just like following around Max Scherzer, someone like kind of chaotic like that. It would be awesome. Maybe not this year for him, but. Yeah, that would be a good one. Um, hmm. If you could get, like if you get Aaron Judge to really open up, I think mm-hmm. that will be. Uh, like that would be a good one, and obviously like a dream for MLB too with the Yankees. Oh, yeah. They would love uh, that. Yeah, Judge seems he seems kind of maybe he's just like so he just seems so normal to me that he doesn't seem as exciting as some other options. Uh, I bet his life is more interesting off the field. Oh, I'm, I'm sure it is. But <laughs> credit for I, I just have to I just have to like judge this based on things I've seen and heard from these players. So like a guy like Bobby Witt Jr. who I want to talk about, I feel like he would be incredibly boring because he just seems like a good old boy who loves baseball and is good at it and is like fairly like humble and quiet. <laughs> so I don't necessarily think he's the guy you want on TV, but it would be awesome to follow his routine and and see that. Like there are so many stories you could tell with all kinds of and players that I'm not even thinking about and like you said with judge, like there are things we don't know about them that would make it interesting in the first place. Like getting to know these players more is often like the whole point. Yeah, I bet like a, an a, yeah, Cunha and Albies together mm-hmm. off the field, like what they're really mm-hmm. like. Yeah. Be... <laughs> yeah. That, you know, that, that, like, people, I think people have a pretty good insight into their personalities anyway, mm-hmm. but that's part of why I'd probably pick them too. Yeah. In terms of like non player figures, I, I would be very intrigued to get like some behind the scenes front office stuff, maybe like the on field staff coaching. Like there, there are so many characters you could tell the stories of that would just add more more of an insight into the game what it's like so i hope they i hope they pursue all these different avenues and don't just focus on players because there there are tons of stories you could tell and tons of different roles and jobs you could get into that i just think would be fascinating as we're talking about it i'm interested in it yeah i'm sure a lot of it'll center on uh alex cora too so Hmm. 
Um, yeah, any other thoughts on that? Uh, no, Bobby Wood Jr. seems to be doing all right these days, though. Yeah, he's doing pretty well for himself. Um, I guess it was February 5th when it was announced. He and the Royals had agreed to an 11-year extension um, that could go up to 14 years. There are three, uh, I guess there are three player options, and then there are three team options after that. Is that right? It sounds like. Um, but it could be up to $377 million for 14 years. He's got a no-trade clause. Um, pretty big deal. I mean, we talked about this with Colt Keith a few weeks ago. I think Bobby Wood Jr. is a different tier of player, but I thought this deal was awesome when it was announced. I mean, I still think Bobby Wood Jr. is probably the most impressive prospect that I've covered um, since their high school days. And I think he, I think we haven't even seen the best of him moving forward. So I think this is phenomenal for the Royals, just showing the willingness to lock down a franchise player like Bobby Wood Jr. to hand out the money to build around him. Um, you had already started to hear some people talking about whether or not the Royals should trade him because they hadn't developed the core quick enough. But like building around Bobby Wood Jr. is like the most obvious thing in the world. And I think it's awesome for the team, for the city, for the fans, for him. Obviously, the guy who just got a guaranteed $288 million. I mean, it's the largest contract the Royals have handed out in their franchise's history. Um, a clear win for all parties involved for me. Yeah, every like you said, everybody wins in this situation. You have a young player. Yeah, I'll, you know, you could say he's giving up some years, I guess, but like he's getting, what was it, 200? What was the guarantee? And I think 200. The guarantee is 288.8, basically, million dollars. Yeah, so all right, you're guaranteed close to three hundred million dollars um, to stay, and, and for the team to be able to lock him up for mm-hmm. that length of time, it's a huge win for the fans. It's it's a good thing for baseball too when you have a team, a team in any market, whether it's Yankees, Red Sox, Royals, uh, Brewers, whoever, to be able to keep a franchise star, a franchise cornerstone player on in in the same uniform with the same team for uh you know for at least a decade now so uh, yeah i think that's like no nobody loses in this scenario i mean obviously if he you know has some horrible injury or something then uh the royals lose but um everything you know for royals fans for the team for bobby witt jr and his family it's mm-hmm. a uh, it's a win all around yeah, I agree. I mean, this could push over, um, it sounds like, I think Fernando Tatis Jr.'s deal, his 14-year, $340 million extension with the Padres. That's like the biggest uh, extension of this capacity, and Bobby Witt could um, go over that by, looks like, $37 million, if I'm doing my math correctly. If, if everything hits and he opts in for three years, it's 2030 to... Um, 2033 is the opt-out years. And then there's also um, a three-year team option if he opts into all of those. So um, kind of complicated on the back end. But the, the overall money, I think it's around $26 million average annual value. on If he just goes through the first 11 years, if he goes through the 14 years, it's around that. So it seems fair um, just given the caliber of player that he is. Like I said, I think we're going to only see him improve in the next few years. I think he's got still some untapped potential offensively. I, I really don't know how people are valuing Witt as a defender. I've, I'm higher than whatever the defensive metrics agree he is. I think a lot of the defensive metrics actually disagree, depending on what system you're using. But I just think this is the sort of player I would want to build around. I think he's 
a very personable kid. I think he's got great makeup off the field. I think he's got all the tools you could ask for. He's playing the position you want a young star to play. Um, yeah, I, all, I'm all, all on board on this. Um, I've always been all in on Bobby Wood Jr. So this is, this is a great day for me, Ben, as a longtime Bobby Wood Jr. fan. When do the Orioles lock up Adley Rushman now? Yeah, I feel like that's the obvious question, right? I mean, you've got Julio Rodriguez, who's assigned his long-term deal. You've got Bobby Wood Jr. We had those two along with Adley uh, in kind of their elite trio of players on the top 100 a few years ago. Well, thinking of just the 2019 draft, they went 1-2 overall. Yeah, well, that, that as well. Yeah, a lot of connections there. That, that one's interesting. I mean, maybe the new ownership situation with Baltimore will make it more likely for him to be locked up, but... I mean, you you gotta. The closer he gets to free agency, the less likely it's going to be that you sign him to a deal because you're. I mean, what the, the benefit for him decreases by signing a deal like that. The closer he gets, so well, the price goes up. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. The price <laughs> will go up. I mean, when would Adley Rushman be hitting free agency? Actually, is he entering his age twenty four or twenty five season this year? Uh, he will be a free agent in twenty eight. Okay, so still four more years. Yeah, they better get on it because, <laughs> I mean, I guess what kind of a contract would you expect Adley to get after seeing Bobby Witts, after seeing Julio's, after seeing some of these other deals? Like, what sort would you would you expect his to be more? Because you could say that his his like baseline as an offensive player is higher, and maybe you could say the position is more valuable. Would he get less because of the age? I would imagine the age is probably the biggest factor here, and the concern about wear and tear of a catcher um but i know there are some people that just prefer adley rutschman going forward to bobby wood jr so yeah i would i would rather have adley rutschman on my team but the age factor is just in terms of a Mm long-term contract extension because by what 2028 he will be i mean he'll be 30 years old he's 29 yeah yeah so all right now you're locking him up for into his 30s how many of those years do you want to pay for i mean i think he can still be a really good player into his 30s but uh yeah that age as a catcher uh <laughs> i don't know that's I, I would still want to lock him up long term mm-hmm. if i'm baltimore but yeah those are and i would rather have adley rushman over the next five years for me compared to bobby witt jr but yeah the catching and the age does does throw um are, are, are definitely the drawbacks to it would the age be more of a concern than the position for you or both equally concerning in terms of just thinking about a long-term deal and also like looking at a guy like jt real muto he, he just came off his age 32 season i think he's still pretty solidly considered in like the top three top five catchers in the league um but i think there are some areas where you could maybe say he's taking a step back i'm not sure how you would project a guy like Adley's game to age compared to Real Muto, but it is a pretty, a fairly significant difference in terms of age just because you're getting one. They're both getting to the majors in a similar timeline, and Witt was drafted out of high school. It's funny also thinking of Witt, the criticisms he got for being old for the class at the time, and how we just, that we don't think about that anymore because he was so successful in the minors. Yeah, I don't think. <laughs> do, do you think if he was in the draft? like with, with more emphasis put on age now do you think that would have affected no he would go lower now yeah i don't, I don't, I don't, think, I don't, so. I don't think so at all i think like i think the age thing some like the teams that are factoring in age i, I would think they're having him in, in a tier of his own to where like 
yeah, maybe his age would matter if there was another player in the same tier as him, the same tool set who was younger. Maybe you prefer that younger player, but that player doesn't exist. So I think you just take the guy and you don't worry too much about the age when, when the talent gap is, is that great. Yeah, no, I agree with you. I mean, I, but like going to Rushman, I mean, I think of Buster Posey and <clears throat> I, I know he had like injuries and, and things like that, but um, just catchers into their thirties are not a great long-term bet. Um, and he was basically done what by when he was 31, 32. Yeah. I mean, his like, final season was um, his age 34 season. He played 113 yeah. games. Um, still an all-star that year, but yeah. So, yeah, I, I don't know. I, I'd still want to lock him up, but there's definitely going to be some... I, I could see reasons why they... Yeah, well, <laughs> they probably want to lock up, you know, Gunnar Henderson and mm-hmm. Jackson Holiday, too. So. Yeah, if you, if you, let's say you can only lock up two players of the Orioles' core. Like, you're guaranteed to get them to, like, I don't know, a, a similar deal to, like, Bobby Wood Jr., where you think it's good for all sides. Maybe it's team-friendly if they if they play up to the expectations we have, but there's also a risk on the team side, like you said, of just that many years, if they get injured, if they just aren't that good, would, would you be more comfortable with guys like Gunnar Henderson and Jackson holiday because of the age, because of the positions or is like Rutschman, is he, he's, he's so good that you would just rather take him because he's like the core of the team. Yeah. Well, I mean, with the younger guys, you're locking up more with Gunnar and Jackson holiday who, I mean, I'd be stunned if Jackson holiday being a, Boros client who already signed for a draft bonus of what, like $8 million. <laughs> um, and yeah, I, I'd be stunned if he actually signed a long-term extension. But if you do sign it with one of those guys, uh, you know, like the way the Brewers do with Jackson Sherio, you're, you, you are getting their really like, especially in holidays case, like still his mid to late twenties and probably someone to his early thirties locked up with the, you know, again, like I'd rather have, Adley Rushman over the next few years than any of those players. I, I just love Adley Rushman, but um, but if you had to sign a long-term extension with one of those guys, yeah, it'd probably be the one of the shortstops. I don't know who Gunner's agent is. I'm not sure if he's a Boris Adley is with that. Beverly Hills, um, and Gunner is with Boris as well. Yeah. All right. Well, <laughs> probably, <laughs> probably a no then to Gunner and, <laughs> and Holiday. Yeah, I mean, look, there are Boris guys who. There was some comment. I don't know if this was Boris specifically talking about how the Orioles have been nonstop asking about extensions with those guys, and Boris is like, "No way." I mean, this is the agent who has like four marquee free agents that still haven't signed, and it's like a week away from pitchers and catchers reporting. Is that right? So, no, yeah. but I would I would want Gunner and Jackson. I think. Yeah, yeah, I think so too. But. If those are the two, I could like we can only pick two. I think I would take them because you're. I mean, I, I just think it's an age. Like Adley's going to be entering his age twenty six season this year. Gunner will be entering age twenty three, and Jackson Holiday, who's yet to debut, will be entering age twenty. So, I mean, obviously, <laughs> I don't know how you view Jackson Holiday versus Gunnar Henderson moving forward over like the next eight years. If you could only have one, which you would pick. Uh, I'm curious about that. Actually, do you have a preference? I don't know if we've talked about this specifically. I feel like we talked about these players so much, but I don't know if we've had this specific question. Uh, I don't, I, I think like Gunner, I think I would probably go Gunner, but I feel kind of crazy because we, we love Jackson holiday so much. Yeah. I mean, Gunner just had like a, 
what, a five, six win season as a 22 year old rookie? Yeah, there's just something about like that major league productivity that you can actually see that gives them confidence. And I feel like they have similar tool sets and upside. And if like, like I don't, I don't think Jackson Holiday has much risk really in the profile. But if I view the tools similarly, and I've got one guy who's done it at the big, like you said, a five war season, yeah, maybe it's just easier to go the proven guy. Who's who's Samuel Basayo's agent? Maybe they can lock him up uh, instead. Let me see. If he <laughs> this is this is why we need the Orioles docu series. I, I don't <laughs> want to see the Red Sox. How much uh, contract extension talks uh, do you think we're going to be getting on that? Yeah, yeah I don't know just, who Samuel Basayo's agent is. Just bug uh, bug Michael Elias's room. I'm not sure that uh, Scott Boris would really want to get in front of a camera, right? That doesn't seem like him. Uh, yeah, I don't. How would that? Yeah, I don't know how that would work for filming that. Yeah, I, I, yeah, they probably wouldn't. Yeah, no, would. I don't think they would film that. I mean, I mean, you might. Who knows? I don't know. I haven't watched these other. Well, you need to watch uh, at least one of these like good sports documentaries. You got to get primed for uh, what's coming. Get some ideas swirling. Get some get some hype about it. Maybe you'll become an F one fan and you can pull for a Ferrari like me. Yeah, I don't have interest in cars. Whatever. <laughs> Again, Ben, I had zero interest at all. I could care less. I grew up in like a NASCAR state. A lot of my family is like they watch NASCAR. I always thought it was super boring. Didn't know anything about Formula One. I remember being pissed because there was a UNC March Madness game and it got pushed off ESPN because of Formula One. And I was like, <laughs> no, I was like, no one cares about this Formula One crap. Where's the UNC game? And here I am now, after binging through Drive to Survive actively, like I'll watch it. I'm not again. I'm not like a diehard. In, in North Carolina or in where you are in Virginia? <sighs> I don't remember where I was specifically. Uh... But yeah, it was like it's ESP. It was ESPN at that point, and they were putting on F one. So if I was yeah. in North Carolina, it would have been off. It would have been off that as well. That would have been sacrilegious. And yeah, really. In that uh, area. I mean, Roy Williams and Coach K are, aren't there. It's a little different now. You know, maybe the maybe it's faded a bit. Hmm. <laughs> UNC did beat Duke recently, Ben. So we're still we're still strong on that front. Don't worry. All right. Well, you can, can watch the UNC documentary when it comes out. Sweet, sweet. All right. What else we got? Uh, did you see Matt's piece on the prospect promotion incentive players? Who yeah. Could be coming up this year. That's required reading for me at this point because I have to wonder about who's going to get PPI picks in the future. We got two PPI picks in the draft this year: the D-backs and the Orioles for um, Gunnar Henderson and Corbin Carroll. So, I mean, we've had PPI picks the last. Last year's draft was the first one for Julio. This one will have two. I wonder how common they will be. Um, but yeah, I mean, if you need the whole list of players who are eligible in 24 for the prospect promotion incentive, Matt has the whole list. And he also broke it down into like players with MLB experience, players who are in the upper minors, um, and then the guys in the lower minors who maybe we don't need to worry about quite yet. But yeah, I thought that was informative. Um, but did you have any thoughts on the players there or? Or players likely to, to net picks in the future? Well, just now, now that we've had the system in place for a little while, I, I think it's pretty clear to me that this is just, it's a its a huge upgrade from what it was before. Uh, you know, is it a perfect system still? No, but I, I like that teams are now incentivized to actually put their best product on the field. I think that's mm -hmm. better. It's better for fans to have, you know, these guys on opening day rosters. Hmm. Uh, it's better to see these guys up earlier and not 
have teams pretending like they're not keeping players down for anything other than service time manipulation. Uh, you know, that can still happen, obviously, but we are seeing more situations where players are actually breaking camp who deserve to be on the team because mm-hmm. that just is how you field the best team. And it's the, the teams end up benefiting from it if you have, like you said, Gunnar Henderson or, or Julio Rodriguez getting team a pick. And yeah, I mean, just by having you get rewarded for mm-hmm. it. They, you get the 29th overall pick last year if you're Seattle. You get to add Johnny Farmello. You get extra bonus pool money. So mm-hmm. um, I, I, I like that it just creates a better on-field product. It's better for fans, and it's better for, uh, obviously, for you know for Julio Rodriguez and players. So uh, mm. I think it's just good all around. Yeah, I agree. I mean, I feel like the draft has really changed significantly in the last few years. The PPI picks are part of that. Just the amount of bonus pool money that gives you maybe is even more important than the pick itself. I mean, I I just ran the 2024 draft order with 2023 slot values because we don't have the 2024 slot values. Um, They're not announced yet. And I think I also had to just basically add the value. There's one extra pick because there are multiple PPI picks this year. Um, so it's it's not exact, but I think in terms of like sh- illustrating how much bonus pool money these teams have relative to where they're picking, it's still informative. The Orioles, um, they're picking 22nd. Uh, that's Is that right? Their first overall pick? Hang on, I have the actual order here. Yeah, they're picking 22nd. Um, for, for whatever reason, I was thinking the Orioles were the D-backs. So like 20, 22 is way too early for them. The D-backs are picking 29. Um, but in terms of total bonus pool value, again, using last year's slot values, the D-backs are 10th overall um, with like $11.5 million in bonus pool. Um, picking 29, that's an outsized amount of bonus pool money to throw around for a team picking there. The Orioles, who pick 22nd, they have the 14th highest um, bonus pool, total bonus pool, and just under 10 million. So like the fact that these teams are going to have money to throw around where they're picking is going to impact the draft. It'll impact like where players are sliding. It'll create more flexibility for how they're maneuvering. And I also think too, it, this isn't directly related to your PPI conversation, but the draft lottery, I think we're already seeing like how that is going to prevent teams from just tanking and bottoming out and actually using that as a consistent way to improve the organization. Like maybe you like that. I don't think anyone really liked the fact that the Orioles and the Astros were intentionally terrible and it led to like a sustained smart way to rebuild. And I, I don't think that exists anymore because even if you do pick at the top of the draft, you can't consistently pick at the top of the draft without penalties, without your pick falling. And depending on your market, like I think the market, I think it should just be across the board the same for every team. Um, I think you might agree with that, Ben, but I do think it just makes the draft itself more dynamic. It doesn't reward being bad, and the incentives are more aligned with how we want them to be aligned throughout the minors and, and at the major league level. So, yeah, I agree with you. I think it's it's more it's more complicated, certainly, on the draft side, and I don't I still don't really love that, like, like we are involved in it inadvertently. Like, we've never th- talked about ppi implications when we're making our top 100 but mlb does use our list in addition to mlb pipelines and espns as like a qualifier for this incentive so i don't know if if you don't care about that but i don't i don't really love that but it doesn't matter to me i I never think about it and and because they use multiple what it's three different lists anyway Mm -hmm. um, 
they yeah, would have to be on two of the other. three. So if it, it'll never be a, we'll never be in a situation where it's like, oh, it's only our fault. Um, but I guess I just, I probably get more annoyed than I should about people being like, oh, why is he not on here? We're not going to get a pick because of him. But Whatever. I do think it's my, a fairly, only, fairly good, fairly good solution. Yeah, my my main interest is in making sure our list looks historically correct, <laughs> uh, mm-hmm. ten, twenty years down the road. Yeah. from now um getting the players in the right order or as best we can mm. um at the time but i mean it's it does make it more likely going into spring training that maybe jackson holiday does break camp with the orioles mm. uh if they do keep him down i don't think it's necessarily manipulation because he was I mean, yeah. it was his first year out of high school last year <laughs> he's 19 years old but yeah you know whether it's i mean for if they have him they have colton Kowser, heston kerstad before maybe those guys get i don't know maybe, maybe the orioles end up trading some of those guys too now that uh they have new ownership and maybe are more willing to take on a little bit more mm. uh salary and big league payroll this year so we'll see how that works out. But I think maybe before those guys would be more likely. I think the the likelihood of them having starting the year in triple A just for the very beginning of the season would have been higher. Whereas yeah. now, okay, if these guys yeah. are on the big league roster from day one, yeah, we could get an extra draft pick, which especially for the Orioles now, now that are, I assume are going to be consistently picking toward the back end of the draft and we'll have a lower bonus pool compared to other teams over at least the next half decade, having those extra picks is going to be pretty significant for them. Yes. 100%. And I wonder how many players who have played as little at the upper levels of the minors entering their age 20 season have actually started the full year at the major league level. It, It feels like most of the players who get to the majors like super early like this are international players who've been in the minors since they were like 17, 16, 17 years old. And they just like fly through like Juan Soto types, Andrew Jones types. Like I'm trying to see how much Bobby Wood Jr. actually played in the minors. Cause he's, he's the first guy to, that comes to mind. He played two seasons and like the 2020 year maybe throws all of this off. Um, but he had 36 games in, in rookie ball in 2019, then 2021, he played 61 games in double-A, 63 games in triple-A, um, so 124 games in the upper minors. So far, Jackson Holiday has just played 36 games in double-A, 18 games in triple-A. It does feel like it would be aggressive to start him on the major league roster, and I also just don't know what the Orioles' lineup is going to look like. They have so many, they still have so much depth even after the, the Corbin Burns trade. But guys like Kobe Mayo, who has a little bit more time in the upper minors, like he's another guy. I don't know if you mentioned, like he could fit here. And I think he qualifies. Um, yes. So, yeah, they have a number of options. And maybe it's just for them, like stack the deck for this Rookie of the Year award and see what you can get. Because all, all these guys are near Major League ready. So any of them starting camp with the team wouldn't be shocking. But I, I guess the, depending on like who's playing second base for the Orioles, it wouldn't be hard at all to see Jackson Holiday looking great at second base and just mashing and you know these are the sort of prospects we expect to have outlier timelines yeah and it makes you know teams also more willing to bring up prospects toward the end of the year too what you know like you know whether it's uh you know Kowser or <clears throat> Curse that obviously have some 
big league time already. Um, so uh, it, I think it, it makes an impact, not just at the beginning of the season, but toward the tail end of the year too. Um, do, do you think there are, obviously like the guys like, you know, like sure. Like Evan Carter, obviously is going to be like a no brainer to start the year in Texas or, uh, you know, I'd imagine Jordan Lawler with the mm-hmm. Diamondbacks too. Um, so some of these guys, easier decisions like Nolan Shanwell, I imagine the Angels are not <laughs> sending him. You're going to pump the brakes after after you were so aggressive a year ago and like get him seasoned in AAA. <laughs> right. So so those guys are all PPI eligible. Um, yeah, they, the, the more interesting ones are the cases where guys don't have time yet. Mm. I mean, I, I would think Jackson Churio will be up. Uh, from day one, Colt Keith, again, another guy signing that long-term mm-hmm. extension. Those guys would both be PPI qualified. So uh, I would think those guys would both be a, do you think, is there anybody else who doesn't have minor league time? You could see, I, like, I think the, like, would, would Wyatt, would Wyatt Langford? Yeah, Langford was pro- Langford was one of the or, first guys I was thinking about. His AB was so good last year. He got to AAA. He's advanced physically. He's been through the rigors of the SEC for whatever competition level you think that might be equivalent for the minors. I think it is probably more uh, more preparation than whatever Jackson Holiday has done. Although maybe the fact that he's Matt Holiday's son is puts him in his own bucket for this but yeah i think just given what he's done given his tools the physicality what he, what he's already done in the ma- the minors where the rangers are right now like i think he's he's much more likely to start with the big league team than a guy like dylan cruz right like just where those teams are at i would imagine the other guy i wonder about and this would maybe be surprising is paul skeens like how long how long do you want him down in the minors like what if he's coming out in spring and just looks phenomenal looks like the guy he was a year ago with lsu like is he really not better than some of the options the Pirates are going to be running out in their starting rotation? I I wouldn't think so, but I also just don't know how much time you need him to have some success in the upper minors before you can just push him. Um, it, it really feels like we're in a bit of a new world in terms of the aggression that teams are moving prospects. And so I don't want to be like, oh, this hasn't happened in X amount of years, so it can't happen. Because, again, we have Nolan Shanwell from a year ago that can disprove that immediately. Uh, and I also just think like guys like Langford and Skeens have the stuff and the tool set to have success immediately. Um, yeah, so I don't know. Um, would you think Hurston Waldrop would be an, more yeah, likely a, to another one. Like, come up in a bullpen role? I, I don't know. I mean, they're going to keep him in a starter role, I guess, unless there's some, a bunch of injuries and they're like, we need someone to fill this spot. I, I feel like they've got their pitching staff reasonably um, set at this point. Like, they don't need him on the team immediately, but given how they moved him, he threw a hundred innings with Florida last year. And he also threw the most innings of any drafted pitcher out of the 23 class and was moved to triple a. Um, so it wouldn't shock me. Like I expect to see Hurston Waldrop on the big league team at some point this year, like maybe starting day one would be a surprise. Like AJ Smith Shaver is a guy who is ready to do that. And he actually has some time in the majors. So maybe he's first up for that, but yeah, I maybe would be a little more surprised if they converted him to a bullpen role immediately just to put him on the team. Like I, I feel like he'd be better suited developing as a starter in the minors on a regular starting schedule if those are your options. But I mean, it wouldn't shock me. I think the the other guy I think will uh, 
has a good chance to be up opening day is Tyler Black with the Brewers. Mm. So, yeah, I mean, between him and Churio, they have two guys who will be uh, potentially, obviously, PPI eligible. I mean, with Black, you're it's too bad because he's he's a good athlete, but you know, defense does not come naturally to him. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Still trying to find a position for him. He does run well for, uh, like, you know, he's just kind of like a thick, compact guy. You, you wouldn't necessarily think he can run. The it's way like he a does, fridge but... that moves around pretty well. Yeah. I mean, he stole 55 <laughs> bases last year and obviously the new rules play a factor in that, but he's, he's a plus runner, but uh, you know, his calling card is his hitting ability, ability to, recognize pitches control the strike zone draws a lot of walks like solid not huge power but solid enough i mean unless he has to go to first base then it's a much bigger uh question mark for that but yeah uh, i mean the way he hit between double a triple a 417 on base last year between the two levels as a uh 22 year old player mm-hmm. um i think ideally he play the outfield but just given the makeup of the brewers lineup uh, or the Brewers roster it's probably not the easiest spot to wedge him into mm-hmm. um, but I, I think I, I think he'll be up and find a way into their, into yeah. their lineup Tyler Black I feel like is a, a player that I consistently am just not thinking about but every time you talk about him I get excited about what he can do with the bat I mean he's been an extremely good hitter the, the Brewers have another player that could have qualified for this Joey Ortiz who they traded for I think he would have been PPI eligible but this doesn't count for um, players who were traded. Um, so Michael Bush would be another one who was traded that would be interesting to talk through, but neither of those players will actually count. Um, Michael Bush from the same draft as Bobby Witt Jr. Yeah. Jeez, man. That's depressing. <laughs> That's depressing for, for Michael Bush. As a college Bush. player. Yeah. Oh, gosh. I'm so excited for him finally getting an opportunity. I mean, he's like the, the starting first baseman for the Cubs, right? Kind of locked that one in. I think so. I guess Cody Bellinger still hasn't signed, and maybe that could be a factor. But, yeah, if you trade for Michael Bush, you, you should be starting him. <laughs> like, that trade doesn't make sense if he's not. So, Setting back to triple A. <laughs> Jesus, could you imagine? Oh, I might yeah. actually have to go out and protest if, if that happened. We would have to take our free Michael Bush um, chant. It's signs around yeah. Wrigley Field. Oh, we'll throw my gosh. soup at the Oh, I'd be yeah. so upset, yeah. No, he'll he'll be starting. We'll, we'll like, will it into existence. It's got to happen. Yeah, I'm trying to think if there are any other guys that, like, like who do you think would be the favorite to win a, or the favorites to win a Rookie of the Year award? That um, I guess maybe there will be, maybe one of the players who's a favorite to win Rookie of the Year is not eligible for this since Yamamoto is coming over. He's Rookie of the Year eligible, right? Even yeah, he's, not, he's not uh, PPI. He's, <laughs> he's not going to net a PPI pick. <laughs> yeah, error. You know, I think they'll be all right. Yeah, so I was going to say that um, Jackson Chorio is probably my favorite for NL Rookie of the Year, but I, I think it has to be Yamamoto. Even oh, yeah. I, Yamamoto's going to be, I think, in the Cy Young conversation, let alone Rookie of the Year. Yeah, okay. Well, I'm hoping that Chorio makes a battle because I feel like he, uh, of the guys that I'm confident in their on-field ability, like the contract makes it seem pretty obvious that he's going to be there from day one, ready to go. So in terms of opportunity... I think Chorio checks the boxes most emphatically of all these players to compete for that award. But yeah, the fact that Yamamoto is in the National League complicates that. Is there like an obvious American League Roy candidate for you here? Like, is it just Evan Carter? Uh, well, it's just like Kate Horton too with the Cubs would mm. be the other 
guy. Other oh, uh, yeah, yeah, in the National League. Okay. Um, yeah, I'm always just not inclined to take a pitcher for whatever reason. Maybe I'm maybe I'm sleeping on what the pitchers have done in the Rookie of the Year voting. Yeah, I mean, I think Evan Carter has got to be the favorite, right? Yep. Yeah, I would think so. Um, yeah, but I mean, Junior Caminero, I imagine he's he would be just as likely to win the award. Um, you don't think? I mean, he's going to be there day one, right? Yeah, I think. Yeah, I mean, he's you know I, he's certainly one of the favorites. I, I mean, would... we have him ranked higher on the top 100, and the opportunity seems equal for them both. So I don't know why he wouldn't be at least in yeah, the same tier. I mean, it's still a bigger jump for him relative to his experience. I think mm, so far yeah. compared to Carter. It's not like Kevin Carter has a massive size of MLB playing time. It just happened to be pretty, uh, pretty peak, <laughs> peak performance in a highly scrutinized event. Yeah, but also Caminero making the jump from, you know, he, he's never played in AAA. Not that you have yeah. to play in AAA, but, um, and he's younger. I think his Carter's approach is more advanced than Caminero's. Caminero yeah. obviously has Caminero's got the more juice, power. Though. Yeah. <laughs> he does have the juice. Yeah. No, that'll be fun. Maybe we'll get some, a couple of fun races. Um, it's always more entertaining that way. Any other sleepers that you think might be able to sneak onto a team and make a run at this? guess there wouldn't really be sleepers if we could just id them yeah well if they're in our top 100 or they count as they count they maybe could count as sleepers for a roya award just depending on like when you expect them to be promoted maybe yeah yeah, maybe or just like guys that don't typically like defensive oriented players like i don't know rokio he's interesting yeah this qualifies a sleeper for you i think so for this one I think yeah. for this, yeah, definitely. Like once I, you I get beyond think, the like top five or so names, like I think they have to count. Like, yeah, I could see him having like a sneaky good season. I think it'll just be like a sneaky good player overall, where guy chips in value in a lot of different ways. Shortstop, premium position, good defender of the position, uh, makes a lot of contact, get on base. Doesn't have the electrifying juice that you, that you like, obviously, with Junior Caminero or. Um, it's you know, probably not even average raw power, but it's it's enough power. Uh, and we've seen him uh, tap into it some in games. Yeah, you know, it's obviously not a big part of his profile, but somebody who just adds value in a variety of ways at a premium position. So um, somebody I could see having, and, and I think is just a really uh, smart player too. Like I, I could see him having a, a, a good transition uh, this year. So could either of Adley Rutschman or Bobby Wood Jr. still get give their teams a PPI pick if they finish top five in MVP? I think they both have one more year for that, right? To Am I reading that correctly? Say that again. So you can get a you can get your team a PPI pick by winning Rookie of the Year award or a top three finish in MVP or Cy Young. Are there any players who you think are in consideration for that MVP or Cy Young? Can, like I, I would think Bobby Wood Jr. and Adley Rutschman are your favorites there, right? Like Julio Rodriguez cannot give the Mariners a PPI pick because he's already done so. So he wouldn't qual- qualify for that. But yeah. I believe both Witt and Rutschman, unless something happens with Witt's contract, which I, I don't know why it would, um, because it specifically is before players are qualified for arbitration. Uh, I don't think the contract extension Witt signed would make a difference there. So those would be like the favorites to me to finish top three in MVP and, and that their team of PPI pick in that way. Yeah. Cause if you've already, um, what was it? it the rules, like if you've already gotten your team, a PPI pick, 
Yeah, once. you can only you, you can only get one PBI pick per organization per year, and a player may qualify his club for a PPI pick only once. So in other words, Matt writes this explicitly, Carol Henderson and Rodriguez no longer qualify for future PPI picks. So like if any of these guys win MVP or finish top three, they've already gotten their team of picks. So you, you don't double up with, with one player. Yeah. Uh, yeah, those would be good ones. I'd have to like think of who, yeah. who would be like eligible for that still. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we need a full list of those players as well. That would be useful, but probably a lot more difficult to create. Okay. Any other PPI thoughts? Uh, no, all around. I like it. Yeah, uh, big fan. Big fan as well. All right, well, let's move on to some of the stuff we had on the site this week. We had both of our preseason All-America teams drop. The college preseason All-America team, the high school preseason All-America team. You and Peter were both hard at work working on 2025 lists we had a uh, top 100 high school update a top 100 college update so basically in the last two weeks we've got 400 players ranked in the 24 and 25 classes with scouting reports so plenty to dig into but do you want to start with start with our rankings uh chat about the all-america teams um what do you want to talk about uh yeah let's talk about the all-america teams because the mm. i mean the way we do it we have MLB scouting directors, MLB scouting departments vote for the college All-Americans and the uh, the high school All-America. Like our, we have an underclass team as well, but for the the high school All-American teams and the track record of that is terms of predicting future first round picks, not that far into the future, but uh, for July is pretty good. Like you just look at the college team last year, it was. Kyle Teal, Nolan Shanwell, uh, Tommy Troy, Braden Taylor, Jacob Gonzalez. Uh, I'll say it very succinctly. There were 13 first-team members who were eligible for the draft in 2023. 12 of those players were first-round picks. The only one who was not was the reliever, who was Andrew Walters, and he went in the second round, which is typically the the high-water mark for college relievers. Yeah, and then the high school team, too. It was... What Blake Mitchell, Kevin McGonigal, Arjun Damala, Aiden Miller, Bryce Eldridge, mm-hmm. uh, Max Clark, Walker Jenkins, Dylan Head. That's just yep. the position players. All those guys, except for McGonigal, who went right outside the first, yep. uh, were first-round picks. The for, pitchers, too. For the high school, yeah. eight, eight of the 11 high school players who were first-team members were picked inside the top 30 picks. And I think it's McGonigal and probably both the pitchers. Um, yeah, and to the, you know the top... You know, the, the pitchers were Mott Noblemeyer, Travis Sakura, Thomas White, Charlie Soto, Barrett Kent, like either a first rounder, got paid like a first rounder or close to it. Um, so, yeah. Uh, if you're looking for, I, I, I do wonder if there will be maybe more volatility this year given the state of the 2024 draft versus mm-hmm. 2023 class, but it's, uh, it's definitely a pretty strong, strong predictive value there for who's going to be going early in the draft this year yeah i think those numbers actually looking just reading them right now and thinking about again it would probably be towards like the higher percentages of first round and i think a lot of that is because the 2023 class was so strong even at this point and like the the players up top had a such a strong collection of tools and profile and pedigree and track record whereas you're right like the 24 class is a bit more wide open and so I wouldn't expect maybe those exact hit, hit rates, but the fact that we have scouting directors vote on these awards 
like inherently make this more predictive. These guys, like if you were just doing preseason All-American team for college uh, and you weren't necessarily polling scouting directors or your preference wasn't like draft focused, there would be more players who maybe have been better performers in college who don't necessarily profile quite as strongly as professional prospects. Um, and so our awards, which I, I love that it's this way, are, are very much focused on current year draft prospects. And that's also why I think the fact that Ethan Holiday was a first team high school middle infielder is pretty awesome because in the time that I've been doing this poll, which goes back to the 2018 class, we have never had an underclassman make a preseason first team. And this year we have Ethan Holiday making the first team at what I would say is the most competitive um, position group of all of these All-America lists, college and high school, like typically the most difficult one to crack, the most competitive group is high school middle infield. That's just, just typically where you have a ton of competition, a ton of high-end prospects. Um, so that's like, I think speaks to one, how talented Ethan Holiday is, um, how respected he is already in the industry a year out from his draft. And also like the relative weakness of the 2024 high school shortstop group. Like I would imagine in previous years, Ethan Holiday might have been a second or third teamer. Maybe he's still good enough that he would have cracked a first team in a better class, a class that had a Jordan Lawler or a Marcella Meyer or Brady House, like Khalil Watson. Like it, it would be tougher for him to have cracked those classes. Um, but I think it is it is telling that Holiday's on this list as a first teamer because that just doesn't really happen. And we only take two middle infielders, with, you know, really two shortstops mm-hmm. on the team, and then the others are. <clears throat> corner infielder so it's even more yeah. uh, competitive than um than just having four infielders mm-hmm. too so um yeah i agree i think it's a testament to how talented ethan holiday is obviously he's our number one player for 2025 high school class uh but also like we talked about last time the uh, you know the the weaknesses of the shortstops at the top of the draft, the high school shortstops for 2024, uh, you know, Carter Johnson from Alabama, uh, also on that first team. But uh, then beyond that, you have guys who, you know, I think are, are pretty talented players, but yeah, not in that tier of, uh, you know, like Jordan Lawler or Brady House or, you know, certainly like a Bobby Witt Jr. Uh, when he was coming up uh, that 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 caliber of high school shortstop is not not in this year's draft. Yep, definitely. Were there any standouts or surprises on either of these teams? And we we also have a, an Ethan Holiday question that maybe we can just get into right now since we're talking about him. If you want to go that route, yeah, yeah, reader question. Yeah, so uh, Jeff Lindis on Instagram asked if it's not Ethan Holiday, who does go number one overall in the twenty twenty five draft? I think we're in a better position to answer this now because we have our updated 2025 lists go up. But I mean, for you, Ben, is it like a clear Ethan holiday is the top name? Cause that's definitely the case for me. Um, I, I think he's, I don't, I don't think he's like head and shoulders above everybody else in the class. I, I think if the, t- if teams had to pick somebody, uh, certainly from the high school side, uh, he'd be the guy I just I think teams at this point have the most familiarity with him and if you look at historically high school players who have gone one overall 
you know, it, it not that I, I think Holiday necessarily projects to stay at shortstop, but uh, it is guys who, you know, have been shortstops, center fielders. Um, so I, I think he'd be the most likely guy. Uh, there are some other really good players in that class, like in that top 10. I, I think it's really strong. Um, but I think more likely um, if, if it's not Ethan Holiday, we, you know, just look at our 2025 uh, college ranking and, um, you know, you can see who we have number one on um, on that list right now. Uh, Cam Canarella, the outfielder from Clemson, had a uh, really outstanding season as a freshman at Clemson. Um, I think he'd probably be the most likely candidate, but um, if, if, it, if it's not Holiday. Yeah, and I, for me, that at this point, that is just a big if. Like, I like Cam Canarella a lot. I just think the amount of impact and physicality and tool set you're getting with a guy like Ethan Halliday, which maybe is weird hearing me talk about a high school player compared to a college player like this, but, like, the tools are just silly. His track record of hitting is crazy. I, I don't – if he's a shortstop at – at the time of the draft and everyone thinks he's going to be a third baseman. I, I think even still, given what I know about the other players in the class right now, like I would be a lot more convicted in holiday, just being that guy. And outside of that, honestly, like I, I like Jace Laviolette on the college side, maybe nearly as much as cam Canarella. Like he is a lot more physical. Uh, I think the power with him is a little bit more exciting with Canarella. I mean, maybe Canarella is just contact ability and pure hitting ability is, is so good that you take him. Um, I think, uh, Caden Bodine at Coastal Carolina, Ethan Petrie um, at South Carolina. Like the Carolinas is pretty stacked um, both this year and next year. Like a lot of those guys would be in that conversation for me. And it, it really feels like, and you would know this better than me, Ben, at this point, given the work you've done, but it it felt like to me reading your high school list and just reading about Holiday compared to some of these other players who a few of them I've seen, but it felt like there was more separation at one there. Like it felt like he was the clear name, but I also might like some of these high school shortstops in 25 because there are a lot of really toolsy athletic shortstops next year that we just don't have this year. And that's fun too. But yeah, for me, Ethan holidays is as locked in a one, one as I think I could have at this point a year out. I, I think he's probably, I'm trying to think of like who is more highly regarded at this age a year out since I've been covering the draft. And I don't really know if there is a prospect. Maybe the hype is getting too crazy, but I, I think it's earned. Uh, yeah, I mean, I think he's a super talented player. I mean, he's six foot four, smooth, easy swing. It's beautiful swing from the left side. He has really good eye for the strike zone too. Don't see him chase much outside the zone at all. Uh, has has power. Um, doesn't have to sell out to generate that power. Like in, you know, some guys are very pull oriented uh, and leaves them with holes in their swing. Uh, and they'd have to sell out to generate that power. He does not have to do that. You see him use the whole field. It's pretty polished offensively. Um, I think I'll never is... forget the first BP I saw him take live. It was just like it was like he was using a rocket launcher, and the sound coming off his bat, and like the reactions of the scouts all around me watching him hit. It was like <laughs> it was a wow. BP. Yeah, I, I think he has a chance to be a, like a 30-plus home run hitter. There is some more swing and miss in there maybe than you would expect just given like, you know, if you think he's 
Jackson Holiday, but six foot four with big power. Like I, I don't think that's <laughs> fair to him. Like that yeah. there is some more swing and miss maybe than you would expect from him. But um, but he, he controls the strike zone really well. Obviously, the swing works very well. Uh, there's big power in there, and he's you know still growing into his man strength at, at this point. And then defensively, you know, we'll see where where he ends up. Obviously, he's six foot four and um, could be could be third base, uh, could be could be the outfield too. We'll see, um, just depending on uh, his development. But uh, you know, if you're drafting him, it's <laughs> you're, you're just banking on him hitting in the middle of the lineup and playing <laughs> somewhere for you. And if it's uh, you know at shortstop, uh, incredible. If it's at third base, uh, you're you're good with that mm-hmm. too. Um, but yeah, I like I, I to me. At the same age, I, I would still have, I think Max Clark and Walker Jenkins um, were would okay. be ahead of him for me. Uh, Clark is, uh, you know, even more contact. Obviously, not the not the same raw power that Holiday has, but Clark also has the advantage of being a you know premium athlete at a premium position too. Mm-hmm. Uh, can play center field, can play it really well. Uh, made even more contact. Another guy with a a good swing, uh, and then Walker Jenkins is just a like a freak of a human <laughs> being. Uh, like six, you know, at that time, you know, six foot three center fielder. Again, kind of kind of the same way now. Is he going to play center field? Is he going to play corner? Eh, probably lean toward corner, but uh, both contact and huge impact with him too, and a, a really good track record of hitting. So. Um, you know, as as much as I like Holiday, uh, I mean, I, I liked, uh, and you know, obviously we have him number one for twenty twenty five. I liked Clark and Jenkins even just a tick ahead of him. Interesting, when they were that age. So would they be since you've been doing underclass high school coverage? Would they be like the the peak players you've seen? I don't remember what was the first draft class you started covering in high school. Uh, I mean, like in the last few years. Yeah, probably, probably them um, mm. for for recent years. I mean, like wire to wire, those guys. It seemed like the first time you had a list, those were the two guys up top, and they kind of stayed there. Maybe they shuffled. I think Max Clark was one, and Walker Jenkins wound up being one. But they were always like neck and neck, right in the same tier. Pick your poison, whoever you prefer, philosophically or like in terms of like if your looks were better, if you just like the one profile better or another than the other. Like those both made sense. So yeah, I mean, we just had three premier college players although clark did go three but like you yeah. know just happened to have three yep uh big big dudes out of college yeah i think i wrote year. about this in the in the top 200 topper like if any of those top five players were in this draft class if you just pick one I, I think it'd be pretty safe to put them in the number one overall spot for the 24 class so yeah definitely the all talent is talent in any given draft year is not equal year over year and that's also i, I think as you guys are listening to this podcast we have a piece on the website um just about how scouting directors grade out the 2024 class so if that's something you're interested in reading um there's full 2080 scale breakdowns of the impact talent at the top the overall grade for the class the high school hitters high school pitchers college pitchers college hitters you can see kind of how scouting directors view the state of the class this year and then we also have linked the last four years we've done this polling from scouting directors so if you want a quantifiable data point to just kind of see what the talent is perceived at this point. That's a good place for you. Was there anything that jumped out to you for the high school 
All-America team this year? Um, let's see. For the All-America team overall, I don't think so. They were mostly the names I expected, again, outside of Ethan Hall. Like, I, w- I expected Ethan Haldy to be on one of these teams. Um, I-, I would have been... Maybe I should have expected him to be on the first team more, just given, like, knowing the lack of high school uh, shortstops here. Um, Cam Caminiti being unanimous, I think, helped kind of add to some conviction of us having him as the top pitcher on the board. I would say I entered this process thinking that there was a really muddled group of arms in the fact that every single person who submitted a vote had Cam Caminiti as a first-team pitcher. I feel like was telling about just where the industry views him. Um Derek Curiel not being a first team member, I don't think is surprising given his summer. Um, but like, if you asked me a year ago if Derek Curiel is a first team preseason All American, I would have said definitely. Um, also, just speaks to how good Dante Nori and Slade Caldwell are, and just how impressive Connor Griffin is as an athlete. I mean, he he ranks top three in a number of these best tools categories that are below our three preseason teams. Um, Outside of that, no, I don't think any were, were massively surprising. How about you? Um, I think the on the pitching side, I'm not. I mean, I'm not surprised. But a lot of the guys on there, like there are guys with bigger stuff, mm-hmm. or at least maybe I should say harder throwers than some of the guys who are on the first team. Like you know, Levi Sterling is mm. not um, you know the hardest thrower in the class, or, or Oh, Cam Caminiti throws hard too, obviously from, <laughs> from the, the left side. side. Yeah. But you know, th- there are some guys who throw, you know, are touching upper nineties, and I think sometimes people get like, oh, well, this guy throws harder than that guy was, and he mm. ranked higher. Well, because yeah. scouts are looking for a lot more than just who has the most raw velocity at mm-hmm. this age. Um, you know, you have somebody like Sterling, where you know they're he's young for the class. Uh, you know. Pitcher out of California, he's young for the class, throws a ton of strikes, uh, has really good life on his stuff, really good feel for his secondary pitches, uh, athletic, has a, a lot of physical projection, a lot of strength projection still to come where you can see that velocity uh, that's going to continue to tick up for him. So, um, yeah, I mean, the certainly the way the way scouts are looking at players is not just, okay, who's who's throwing the hardest at a young age and might grab a lot of attention or get a lot of attention, especially on social media or, or elsewhere. Mm-hmm. But uh, when scouts are trying to project these guys out going forward, it's not necessarily the guys who are uh, lighting up the radar gun with the highest numbers who they're most, most interested in. Yeah. I, I, again, on the, <clears throat> excuse me, on the college side, I think a good example of that is Josh Hartle. I mean, I list these guys in order of the votes they got. So the first player that you see on a high school or a college All-America team, those players have like the most votes by the industry. And Josh Hartle got more votes than any pitcher in the college class. And I believe last year his average fastball velocity was like 90 or 91 miles per hour. And again, like I think there are some questions about starters versus relievers in this college class specifically we wrote about it on the site this week if you want like a more in in in-depth breakdown um but chase burns a week ago josh went out and saw him and he was showing absolutely filthy stuff fastball up to 100 miles an hour a slider that doesn't look like it should be that hard and move that much and his teammate josh hardwell who throws like 10 miles an hour slower than him um maybe not on average but 
significantly slower than him, but has a really strong track record as a starting pitcher and throws strikes and has a deep pitch mix and has a clean delivery. Like it is certainly not all velocity. And I think with both Sterling and with Hartle and guys like Drew Beam, who's also on the first team uh, list and just has like, if you can give teams a lot of conviction in your ability to start and be like an advanced pitcher with a deep pitch mix, I think that is extremely important much like you can find big time velocity all over the place these days like you can you can find it it's it's much harder to find a good pitcher than to find someone who can throw hard the the other guy who stands out i think for the outfield connor griffin and slate caldwell were pretty obvious picks right like uh, i think any probably they get a lot of votes for first team for from mm. a lot of people yeah um then the third outfield spot goes to Dante Nori from mm. Michigan. He, he's an interesting one to me because he, I mean, he's already 19 years old. Yeah. And, he, and then he turns, so he turns 20 in October. So he's like, you know, it's not like he turns 19 just before the draft or in the spring mm. of the draft. Like he's, he's pretty significantly yeah. Well, like he's at least he's like, like nearly being a, a draft eligible freshman in college. Like it's close <laughs> to that. <laughs> yeah. But he's I mean, he has very legitimate tools. I mean, he's a premium athlete. He's like a top of the scale runner. Yeah. Um, I mean, he won fast. He run best runner in the class. He's like multiple times turned in the best run time at like events with tons of other players running in them. Yeah. Yeah. And he's I mean, he's what five ten maybe five eleven at most uh, <laughs> like a pretty strong compact filled out frame obviously like he, he can really run but there's not a ton of physical mm-hmm. projection there because he's already really strong but his swing is i mean it's really efficient from the left side uh he's he's really hit a lot uh, and performed really well uh but obviously you know for certain guys, like yeah, the the age is going to be a factor. You know, if you're Bobby Witt Jr., it's less of a factor because <laughs> you know you are that elite of the elite. Mm-hmm. Um, and I you, think I mean, too the, the the interesting point there to maybe contrast with Bobby Witt Jr. and Dante Nori is I think that the lack of projection on the body, like physically, that is something where I've had scouts reach out, and I think Nori is going to be extremely polarizing in this draft class because there are a lot of scouts who are like, yeah, he's he's a great hitter now, but like you're basically buying a player today and he's going to be the exact same five years from now. Like you can't project a lot of growth there. Like the player, the scouts who are out on that profile are going to say like, what are we projecting here? Like he is, he's maxed out. Like you said, we can't expect him to get a lot more physical. Like it, it, you have to be super convicted in his tools now translating. Whereas there are other players like maybe Derek Curiel is a good example because he has a lean wiry frame. He might not be a guy who adds a lot of strength, but you can at least like dream on the tools taking a, a step forward in the future because he can add strength and you can dream on more power coming. So I think Nori is already one of the most polarizing players in the class. And he did beat uh, Derek Curiel on the first team by like, I think it was a single third team vote was the separator. So it was close here, but he's an interesting player. Yeah. I mean, for you know, as many, like all the things you just talked about, he still did get vote, voted onto the yeah. first team. Um He's also, what, like a year and a half older than Slade Caldwell, who I think can also say, like, mm-hmm. I don't know. So, like, Slade Caldwell's going to be, I mean, he still, he, he turns 18 in June, so right before the draft. He's one of the younger players in the class. But with him, too, I mean, is it the same question of how much 
more physical projection mm-hmm. is there? I think there are similar questions there. Maybe he probably doesn't get them as much because you can't compound that with the age factor. Right. And I think the age is significant, like just the degree to which Dante Nori is older than the class really jumps out. Um, but Slate Caldwell, he got more first team votes or more votes overall points how I how I do it than anyone, than Connor Griffin. Like Connor Griffin, we have ranked like 20 spots, 25 spots higher than him, but no one got more votes for high school outfitter than Slate Caldwell. So clearly there's a, a bit of a difference in how these two are viewed on, from the industry at large. And I think age is probably a key factor. I mean, they have similar tool sets. They have similar pure hitting ability. Yeah, might just come down to the age with those two specifically. Yeah, you know, I like uh, I like Caldwell. He's yeah, not that obviously not that tall. Probably five eight, five nine, but yeah, um, the Ben Badler way. <laughs> I mean, he's a yeah, very patient approach. It's very short, you know, short arm, short swing, uh, a lot of line drives all over the field. Uh, it's funny you call his approach runner. patient because I feel like when I saw him, he was like ready to hit and i would i would have called it selectively aggressive because he was making good swing decisions but he was also letting it rip and like like hitters counts and maybe it's also because i was I, I could be comparing it directly to Derek curiel who was almost like too passive at times last summer um but he definitely has a good good understanding of the strike zone yeah you think he has a chance to be a first round pick I mean, I think so. Like, yeah. just based on based on the voting here, based on what the industry is saying, his performance, his age, the profile. Again, like, I think there are going to be some teams that are like, no, why are we taking this, like, five foot eight, five foot nine player who we have questions about impact? Like, some teams will be out on that profile in the first round. But, I mean, how different of a profile is Slade Caldwell from, like, Dylan Head a year ago? I don't know. Maybe you like the athlete of Dylan Head better. Maybe you think there's more power you can dream on there, but it's a left-handed hitting center fielder with plus speed and plus defensive mm. ability who performed the whole circuit. Like that's going to like the conviction of his pure hitting ability and sticking him at an up the middle profile. It's going to be enough for a lot of teams and you factor in the age. Yeah. Um, being younger, it's a lot of class. elements, a lot of elements to like. Hmm. Um, all right. Anything the one, else? Yeah. The one other one I wanted to mention is best. So best tools, P.J. Orlando being number one in both best pure hitter in the class and best power in the class. I mean, I, I felt that that's the case for Orlando, and that's why I really like him up top. But in a class where we don't have that Max Clark or Walker Jenkins high school profile, I wonder if just that excitement about his offensive profile is enough to override any any defensive concerns you might have about taking a, a player who could be a first baseman out of high school as the first overall prep player off the board. Like, were you surprised to see him rank first in both? I think you, we yeah. all would have expected him to rank top three. Uh, yeah. I think that like, he's just such a complete offensive player. Um, I guess uh, <laughs> I wouldn't be shocked at all if he like slipped into the top 10, we don't have him in the top 10. We have him like just outside of that range, but I, I just think he's a very complete offensive player. Yeah, I think for I don't think there's a more yeah complete high school hitter in the country than him. Um, I think you could like there. I think there are guys who have comparable raw power to him. Um, Mm -hmm. Probably nobody from the left side. I I know Miles Bailey has big power to the first baseman in uh, Mm -hmm. Florida, and and there's some other guys who have like huge raw power. Obviously, Samuel Richardson. I think yeah, I was gonna say Samuel Richardson can. He didn't get a best power vote, surprisingly. 
Yeah, he he should. I mean, <laughs> if we're just talking raw power, he should. Yeah, like like him, Andre Madugno, like just in terms of you know just sheer raw power. <laughs> um, you know, those guys are definitely a lot more power mm. overhead types, but yep. um, just in terms of ability to. Uh, impact the ball when they get into it are are right up there, but um, I don't think there's anybody who can combine the both the pure hitting ability, um, strike zone judgment, and power that PJ Morlando has this year. Hmm. Yeah, no, he's quite good. Um, let me also see who we had for yeah closest to the majors. The the voting for that for high school is always interesting because a lot of times there's not like an obvious player. It went PJ Morlando, Cam Caminiti, and Slade Caldwell. As closest to the majors, did you have any thoughts on that specifically? Kind of a weird mix of players. Uh, yeah. I mean, it's probably. I don't just think there's great options the this year. Yeah. Right? <laughs> yeah. Okay, that's kind of all I had on preseason All America teams. They're always fun. So. Right. Well, what about on the on the college side for funny? tools or just overall? Um, yeah, I don't know if anything jumped. Yeah, the out one. The one most interesting area for college, I would say, was second base. That was uh, highly competitive because we have two of our top three players in the class there, um, J.J. Weatherholt and Travis Bazana. Uh, early on in the voting, they were kind of neck and neck. At the end, J.J. Weatherholt sort of ran away with it. Um, so that was a close competition, which everyone wasn't first team. was always going to be second team for them. But I guess going in, I was like, I wonder if, like, I expected Weatherholt to win. Um but I was like, eh, it's fairly close. It wouldn't be shocking if Bizana won. So that one was interesting. Um, the catcher voting was actually pretty interesting. And it, it helped us kind of realign our catcher-specific rankings in our update. Uh, it was Malcolm Moore first, Caleb Lomavita second team, Jacob Cozart third team. So that's like entirely inverted from what our rankings previously were. Um, we initially had Jacob Cozart as the top catcher on the board because Malcolm Moore's defensive questions we talked to some people who were like more out on Malcolm Moore. And so I think we just have a more representative sample of the industry giving feedback here. Um, but we kind of have this catcher group jumbled up in the middle of the first round. And Kater and Bita is also not too far off from this grouping. So I'll be curious to see if we get any sort of separation or distinct preferences for these catchers because the voting was close. The order was close. And I think if you ask me on any given day, like how I would line these players up, I maybe would shuffle them. Um, so just getting some, like thinking through that catcher position specifically, I think it's a good year for the group. Um, Tommy White not being unanimous as the third baseman was kind of surprising. He missed that by one vote. Uh, I would have expected him to be the unanimous third or a unanimous first team member at third base. Um, yeah, those are kind of the ones that jump out to me. Somebody has it out for Tommy White. <laughs> Brody Brecht maybe not being first team, although I, I'm probably in agreement yeah, with that. I think. I mean, just I given – I, I, I get it obviously on just the raw talent and as a prospect, but yeah, um, got to – Got to throw some more strikes. Yes, yeah. there is. And I think the criteria we say for teams is we ask them to vote based on – based on some combination of college per, of performance and pro potential. So um, that's kind of how, how it goes. But uh, yeah, nothing more on that, I don't think. All right. Uh, yeah, yeah, nothing super surprising that jumps out other than it being weird. Like you said, not seeing Travis Pazana on the first <laughs> team. But, uh, yeah, um, definitely more tough, indicative of tough, like just where <laughs> yeah, tough JJ Weatherhall. If JJ Weatherhall could have just played shortstop last year, it would have been a lot easier for everyone. Yeah. 
All right. Well, you want to get into some listener questions? Yeah. All right. We've got one question from Levi Machovic on Instagram who asks, how does your evaluation of D.L. Hall change now that he's with the Brewers? Um, I actually saw that Jeff wrote about this from a fantasy perspective, and, and he had some comments about how it should change your mind for fantasy in, in terms of like non-fantasy, just in terms of prospect status, value as a pitcher. I don't think it changes too significantly for me outside of like maybe I have a tick more confidence in the Brewers developing Hall. Um, but even then, like I think Hall had shown some good improvements with his strike throwing ability late last spring. Maybe it, it just makes me more, feel more confident that Hall will have opportunities to develop as a starter, even though like I think he's probably a reliever. What do you think? I think he's I think he's almost certainly a reliever. Uh, I guess I wouldn't rule it out. I mean, he's still being developed. He's still training right now in preparation for the season as a starter, as far as I know. But yeah, I'm with you. Yeah. I mean, when he came up last year, he was a reliever. Um, There's not much of a track record of either durability or strike throwing. Um, And look, I think the stuff is really good. I, I just don't see the control or durability to hold up uh, or to give me much confidence that he can hold up as a starter. I I think if he does improve the control, then he has certainly the stuff to develop into a high leverage reliever. But um, I I, I'm just, to me, it doesn't change a whole lot. Like I, I think the Brewers are a very good organization when it comes to developing pitching, but like, I don't think there's, going to be something where like they're going to put their fingers on him and he's, you know, his control is suddenly going to take uh, a grade or two grade step forward that would allow him to start. So uh, my, my expectations for him, you know, obviously playing time is different, but um, just in terms of a a long-term outlook for him is, is still the same. Yeah. I would probably tend to disagree with you on that one At, at a certain point. If you've, consistently had the same question and it hasn't really been answered in a significant way. It's kind of who you are. Um, all right. We got an email from Bryce. Uh, always appreciate your emails. You guys can email us at future projection or future projection at baseballamerica.com. He says, could you go into detail as best as possible, how players and agents successfully play the posturing game with teams to get drafted in the slot they want for the bonus they're looking for? We hear a lot that players and agents float out such ridiculous numbers to other teams when they have a pseudo agreement made with another team lower on the draft board. But do teams ever call the player and or agents bluff on that and draft them anyways and try to sign them for overslot, but maybe less than their preposterous request? Would love to get some behind the scenes on the cat and mouse game played between the MLB front offices and player agents to get the signing bonuses they're looking for. As always, love your show. I think this is an awesome question because I think a lot of this stuff is is maybe some of the most interesting parts of the draft in terms of strategy um, from teams, in terms of an agent's ability to maybe impact landing spots more than um, agents could with other sports, just given the draft systems and how it works. We, I would also just plug a piece that I wrote about a lot of this. Um, last year, I, I did a story basically going into the war room of Wasserman, who had a significant amount of draft capital in the first round. And I think a lot of your questions here are addressed in like how they actually operated as an agency with a number of players in terms of collecting information on what teams were looking for up and down the board, 
how that posturing went out. I think a lot of that is answered there, but I also am happy to get into it on the podcast because it's, it's fascinating. Um, well, we should probably zoom out first. And yeah, go ahead. Just, just explain why yeah. a agent or a player would actually want to go later in the draft <laughs> than earlier, because, you know, like in a, the NFL or the NBA, it's right. Like the higher you go, the more you get paid. Right. Uh, whereas in the MLB draft, you yeah. can get, you can get paid. Our know. listeners are advanced, Ben. They know this. I mean, most people <laughs> are, I'm sure, but there's, I think there's probably a lot of people for sure listening yeah. who don't know that if you can go later in the draft and teams can, uh, go over their bonus slot where they can, you know, promise you, uh, $3 million or $4 million more money than you might get from another team where even if the pick value is higher with a higher pick, the team is not necessarily going to pay you that same amount of money. So if you can work out an agreement with the team that has the, you know, 20th overall pick uh, mm. and you get that team to slide you down there or to yeah. slide you into the third round or the fourth round, um, and promise to sign you for $2 million. Mm -hmm. Um, okay, sure. I was a fourth round pick, but I got paid. <laughs> like I was <laughs> the, you know, 21st overall pick mm -hmm. in the draft. Like I was a first rounder. So you can't, you know, pound your chest and say you're a first rounder. But yep. uh, at the end of the day, what you probably care more about is the, the final signing bonus. Sure. Yeah. And, and almost in the opposite direction, if you take an example from last year's class, like, taking an underslot deal could be beneficial for you because if, if a, an agent or a team or, or excuse me, if an agent or a player has a good idea of like where their realistic range of outcomes is on a draft board, if you take an underslot deal with a team further up that window, you can kind of lock in a guarantee maybe above what a slot value would be for the tail end of your, your range of outcomes. So for instance, Max Clark, who was drafted third overall by the Tigers slot value for that pick last year is $8.3 million. He took a $7.69 million deal, which was $645,000 under slot. Like on the surface, you could say, why, why are you taking that much of a discount? You're Max Clark, like you're in this tier of player. Well, if you look at the slot value at five overall, that's $7.1 million. So he's getting basically $500,000 more than the slot value for the fifth overall pick, which I would think would be a realistic sort of bottom end range for Max Clark last year. So if you think you are likely to, if Detroit doesn't take you, you're likely to go five to the twins, taking that deal could be good for you. Even if you look on the surface it's an, and it's an underslot deal for Max Clark. And, so, and these are you're like typically negotiated and agreed to ahead of time before mm -hmm. the actual pick is made. Yes, for sure. And I would say like, so your question is like, how do they, how do the players and agents play this posturing game? Do teams ever just say like, you know, like we're not gonna, we, we know that you have a, you're saying you're not going to sign for this. We're going to take you anyways. Yes, that happens. That happens. I would say fairly consistently. Like there are some teams who are, if they just have the player on the board, they're going to take him regardless. They're going to figure it out. I think most of the teams want some sort of confidence that they're going to have deals with players. Um, but yeah, calling a player's bluff happens all the time from a team perspective. Most of the time it works out because most of these players are signing. Um, but there was a draft, I think the 2018 draft, Matt McLean was drafted in the first round. I think he was selected that year without a deal in place. And the team was like, all right, we're going to call your bluff. Like we want you, we're going to sign you for this. They didn't agree to a deal. Matt McLean goes to college, worked out great for him. Um, so that happens. Um, but in terms of like 
the actual mechanics of how it works. I would say most of the time a team will call a player if they want and they will ask. And it depends on where you're at in the draft. Like if you're picking at the back of the first round, there's probably a larger pool of players um, that you have in mind. Whereas if you're picking top three, maybe there's only two players that you're really looking at. So this changes depending on where you're at in the draft, but a team will call a player and say, hey, will you sign for X? And if they say no, they'll move on to the next guy if they have a pool of players. And they'll say, okay, call the next guy. Will you sign for X? Yes, great. Take the player, you'll move on, you'll you'll continue with your plan. Then also there are situations where agents will overplay their hand. They have a they think that they're going to go in a certain range. They don't go in that range, they start falling, their demands they have to scramble, they have to figure out where they're going to, they have to maybe fall to a team that has more bonus pool money later. That that's happened. I think that maybe was a factor with Khalil Watson falling to the first middle of the first round to the Marlins several years ago. Like he was definitely in play up top, didn't happen. Then he found a nice landing spot with the team that had some more money. So that's kind of how it can work too. Um, yeah, it is. It's interesting thinking about like when the actual numbers are exchanged. I know a lot of agents and teams really don't want to put out numbers until the last, the last chance. And it feels like on draft day is actually when a lot of these specific numbers are thrown out there. Um, but it is a very fascinating part of the draft. I don't know if I've like specifically answered all your questions, but that tends to be kind of how it works. Yeah, well, the risk for the team, like, you know, this question specifically about calling a team's or calling a player's or that player's agent's, mm. uh, I don't know if it's bluff or is, is the right word, but it's basically, yeah, the, the players worked out an agreement with a, another club to sign for a certain signing bonus. And, and typically but, the agreement is basically, if we give you this and this pick, will you sign? And it's a yes or no. It's not like there's a contract written up. It's just like will sign for this X amount of money and then the players will they'll say no to the teams who are calling prior to that. Right. Well the the hurdle is that you have to then it's not like international free agency where it's like, okay, well you have a deal. You'll sign with us. Right. Exactly. Um, the draft you have to get the player down the board, uh avoid any other team taking him. Whereas if you're I mean I guess like the Red Sox a couple times <laughs> like with you know, like they draft Jay Groom, right? Twelfth uh, overall, she's uh, more than a few years back now. Um, <laughs> or, or they took uh, uh, Judd Fabian too in the second yep. round. He doesn't sign. Yep. Uh, you know, he <laughs> has some leverage and says, "All right, fine, I'll uh, yeah, I'll go back to school. I'll go back to Florida, uh, and then I'll go, you know, to the Orioles <laughs> in." <laughs> in the second round the following year. So the, I mean, the risk for the team is you don't sign the player. You lose that pick. You, you know, you, maybe you get a, you know, pick the following. And year, you lose but, the bonus pool money tied to that pick too. Right. So that could you impact your strategy. The bonus pool money. And like you said, at, at a certain point, you, you probably have players who, yeah, like you have a draft board, you have these guys lined up in a certain order, but like, is there a big difference between number 45 and number 47 on your board? Eh, probably not. And like, do you want to deal with the headache of <laughs> not signing and, you know, being the scouting director that didn't sign your second round pick uh, or your, even your first round pick some years. Yeah. Um, but other times, yeah. I mean, if you've done your homework and you, you know, you really believe that this guy will sign, even if he had, 
um, something in place where uh, he might get more money if he signed, uh, if he had fallen further in draft and, and gone to his preferred landing spot. Uh, you know, you can still sign him and it still works out. But yeah, these mm-hmm. are just kind of the different. Um, yeah evaluate or trade-offs teams have to make in their decisions and i would say this is also why it is typically easier for teams to do these overslot deals with high school players um, because high school players inherently have more leverage in the draft than college players do teams generally know if you're a typical third-year college player if you're not signing this year you have next to no leverage a a year later as a college senior Uh, and so most of the college players are pretty incentivized to sign and so it's just harder to put out some huge number uh, and then not sign with a team that takes you um, whereas if you're in high school if, if you're legitimately like fine going to college if you don't get your number you can put out a big number and if, if no one meets it you can go to school you can raise your draft stock you've got two or three more years depending on your age um, it's just a lot easier to do those over slot deals and slide a high school player down the board than it is a college player because again the college player it's a lot harder for them to say no i'm not signing i'm going back to school it's it's a significant leverage play another thing that i think is interesting too is i've heard of situations where teams will put out different numbers or players will put out different numbers to different teams just based on where they want to go like you you have some ability to determine where you're going to be ultimately any team can take a player they want if, if a player is at the top of their board and they're like this is our guy like they can make that pick that's their decision to make but i have definitely heard of of players and agents putting out bigger numbers for teams that they necessarily don't want a uh, part of being involved with and that impacts how things happen like if if you've got a really great track record of developing players I imagine it's it's a lot easier to sell a, a player on coming to your organization, and that might help you get a deal with a player. So that's a factor too. Like my number is one million for the Orioles and <laughs> two million for the Red Sox. Yeah, if you're a hitter, and let's say you're like it's, or it may, pitching feels easier. Like if you're if you're a pitcher and you don't want to go play in Colorado because it's not a great place for pitchers, or if there's some team that I, I guess shouldn't use specific teams, but if there's like a team that you look at their track record, you don't think they do a great job developing players. Or their I mean, just their philosophy is, doesn't align. Yeah, with, yeah. Maybe you've had some pre, like some meetings and you've heard about what they want to do with you and you're like, I don't really buy into that. Like, I don't think that is good for me. I, I, I believe in this other team's ability to make me the best player I can possibly be. Like, it's your career. You would, if you think it's going to make that much of a difference, you would imagine take a, a few hundred thousand dollars more or less in any direction to try and optimize like the next few years of your career to be the best player you can be like that definitely happens. Yeah. So it's, uh, there's definitely risks involved <laughs> trying to slide a player mm. down the board. Uh, but teams will, uh, try to interrupt those deals every year. Yeah. I think ultimately there was a piece that JJ did a few years ago about, about like players putting out numbers that weren't actually their real numbers. And then, teams not picking them then their numbers change and it gets lower and it gets lower like ultimately like you need to know like what your real number is and know like what it would take for you to sign versus go to college before the draft happens because once once the draft starts and things things start happening that you didn't expect um like if you start scrambling and changing up your number it is going to make teams it's it's a lot harder for teams to to deal with that from you because you just don't have a solid number in place so that was one of the takeaways that I think JJ had. I'll try and find that piece and link it in the show notes because it was interesting as well. Yeah, I mean, that seems like just getting 
bad counsel from well there are a lot of players in the draft that like don't have representation like they're not 600 players that have player agents so it's important to know if you don't have an agent on board or or you're just getting bad advice sure from your agent which which happens internationally too where you're like oh this guy's you know you have a player and the agent will be telling teams he wants two million dollars for this player and teams are like well you know we like him for a million or nine hundred thousand dollars but all right we're not we're not going to pay him two million so we're going to spend our bonus pool money elsewhere and then all these teams spend their money elsewhere and then they come back and they're like well okay we'll take eight hundred well we don't have eight hundred thousand dollars it's gone yeah too late (laughs) why would you should have had a more if you asked if you asked for that earlier had a more realistic number and it happens quicker on draft day but that exact situation you just laid out could happen in draft day too if you're putting out this big number pre-draft you see a bunch of players at your demographic go early on like once you're outside of the top two rounds, like teams have committed a large percentage of their bonus pool. Um, maybe if you had a your actual number, which is lower than what you're putting out, you, you could have been taken previously and you don't have to worry about it. But yeah, I, I don't envy the players being in that situation. Although maybe I do, like they're, they're all getting nice paydays. I would have a pretty low number relative to all those other ones, Ben, I can tell you that. Well, I think the teams that have a <laughs> I'd be signable. Low... My team... signability would be off the charts. Well, I think you're... Uh... I think the team's number on you would be pretty low too. So. Yeah, unfortunately, that is the case. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, hopefully, hopefully, Bryce, that answered your question um, reasonably thoroughly. Um, so, yeah, send us your questions, guys, if you have more in this vein. Um, I think that's all we have for today, though. Ben, anything else you want to uh, mention or talk about before we get out of here? Uh, no, 2025 rankings up, 2024 rankings up. Obviously, that means 2026 is next and also – uh, like you said, college baseball, high school baseball, starting up spring training, going to get some prospect backfield uh, and main field action too. So hmm. um, just uh, cool. Good to have uh, good to have spring ahead. Yes, 100 percent. All right. Well, thank you guys for listening. Thanks for supporting BA. If you do, we really appreciate that. And you guys are letting us travel around and watch these players and tell you about them. So thank you guys for that. Thanks for hanging out with us. And we will talk to you next week on actual opening week of college baseball. So that'll be fun. Take care.